And so, beloved brethren, as we come for this morning to take up the subject of the Christian's gospel obligation concerning the glorious, sure return of Jesus Christ from Romans chapter 13, I ask you please to turn with me in your Bibles there. Romans chapter 13, picking up at verse 11, and I'll read to verse 14 in your hearing. Romans 13 at verse 11. Here is the Apostle Paul turns our attention from ethics in the previous words to eschatology or the end times. He writes the following and says, Romans 13, picking up at verse 11. Paul says this, And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Brethren, let's once again pray. Our great and glorious God, how thankful we are that we could be gathered together here on the Lord's Day to worship your name. We thank you, O great God, that of you and through you and to you are all things. And how we rejoice, O God, that you've given us this one day in seven where we could gather together to consider your truth and to be blessed by it. Lord, again, our hearts go back to the baptisms that we just witnessed, O oh God. We pray for all of these new converts, that they would serve you well all of their days, that they would be true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, who would take up the cross and follow hard after him in all things. We pray your richest benedictions to be upon them, O oh God. And again, we thank you for all that we've witnessed. And now, Lord, as we come to your word, we are mindful that we are weak. We are mindful, O oh God, that apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we're asking, O oh God, that you would send to us this morning the Holy Spirit sent down from above. O oh God, that you would shut us in so that we would feel his presence and his power and his person. O oh great and glorious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're asking that the Word of God would run and have free course this morning and that each of us would feel the import of that truth deep within. And having felt it, O oh God, we pray that our lives will be changed in light of it. O oh God, we invoke your presence this morning. Come and be our portion and our aid. And for all of these things, we will greatly bless and praise your most wonderful name. We ask them only in and through that exalted name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. It was John MacArthur who rightly said that the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is a key doctrine of the Christian faith. MacArthur said it's not minor or unimportant, no, rather it's crucial. And this is because Jesus' return consummates the history of the world and the history of redemption, and it is the fulfillment of all of God's pledges and all of God's promises and his covenants, his threats, and his warnings. Well, dear brothers and sisters here this morning, I absolutely believe that Dr. John MacArthur is right in all that he said. In truth, his words are spot on. And yet, in addition to them, I would also say that 
The second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is crucial, and this is because it is to be a real wake-up call for all of us who are Christians, and this to spiritual alertness and moral purity since our Lord Jesus Christ can return at any time. Now, beloved friends here this day, think about this matter, this matter that I just put forth to you. Think about this matter for a moment. I mean, if you knew that Jesus Christ was returning this afternoon, wouldn't you be living a bit differently? I mean, if you knew, listen, if you knew that his sudden, personal, visible, and bodily return was this very day, wouldn't you be sure that your life was in order? Well, of course you would, right? Oh, of course you would. And why? Well, it's because having been saved by Jesus' free grace, you want to please the Lord. It's because you would not want to be like the evil servant who said in his heart in the parable that his master delays his coming. No, rather, you would want to be like the wise virgins who took oil in their vessels with their lamps so that when the bridegroom returned, they would be ready to meet him. Well, it is then this matter of Jesus' sure return and our living the way which you and I are supposed to live as God's people that the Apostle Paul connects that he marries in our passage for today. Here again as Paul is turning our attention from the matter of ethics to eschatology. He tells us three vital things which are to be essential in our lives as Christians in view of Jesus' return, and they are, firstly, that we wake up, secondly, that we clean up, and then thirdly, that we suit up. Wake up, clean up, and suit up. Dear brothers and sisters here, this day, these are to be the watchwords which we are always to have before us if we are not going to be ashamed when our Lord returns. And so, as we come then for this morning to these crucial matters for our spiritual good, I trust, I ask you please to notice with me in your copy of the scriptures, first in verse 11 of this chapter, the matter of us waking up. Here is Paul, is motivating the Christians at Rome to be all that God would have them to be, and us as well, in view of the sure arrival of Christ, he writes saying, verse 11, and do this, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Now these words here in the beginning of the sentence, which read, and do this, seem to connect us to what the Apostle Paul was speaking of in the previous section of this book when he said that you and I are to express Christian love, Christian agape to all people. He says there, for example, in verse 8 and verse 10 of this chapter, look at the language, that we are to owe no one anything except to love one another. And why? Well, he tells us, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law, which is to say the second table of it. And then he says in verse 10, look at the words, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Well, again, he says next in our verse in view, here in 11a, and do this. And do this. What's the connection? Well, the connection is that we are to live with Christian love toward all, and then in giving us a strong motive, for why you and I are to do this. He says, knowing. Do this. Live in this way. Live with Christian agape to all people. Why, Paul? Knowing, or better understood, understanding the time 
And so the question is, what time is Paul speaking of here? Well, clearly, listen, dear ones, clearly he's speaking about the appointed time, or we might say that decisive moment in history when our Lord Jesus Christ will return to this world. Simply stated, the Apostle Paul here is speaking about that time when according to our Lord's own words in Matthew's Gospel, he will return, quote, in the clouds and in the glory of his Father with his angels. And at that time, as you know, our Lord Jesus Christ will judge the world in righteousness, casting off unbelievers into eternal ruin and yet receiving us, his people, into everlasting glory. Praise be to his name. Well, in view of this great end time, or we might say eschatological reality, which the Bible speaks of in many places, Paul says next in our verse to the Christians at Rome, and again to us by way of extension, note the words with me there in your Bibles, he writes saying that now, underscore it, now, not tomorrow, not next week, not next month, nobody says, but now it's high time to awake out of sleep. Now, when a Paul here speaks about us who are Christians awaking out of sleep, what sleep is he referring to? Well, obviously, listen, obviously he's speaking about any spiritual slumber that you and I might be in, right? Uh, you see, here he's speaking metaphorically. And his point is plain, and it is that instead of you and I being spiritually drowsy, imagining, for example, that Jesus' return is some way-off distant event, which perhaps might not even happen, as some falsely say. Paul says, rather, that it's high time for us as the people of God to awake out of such a delusion. He says that now is the time that you and I who are Christians must absolutely rid ourselves of all such notions. And then he puts forth the grand reason for this. When he says next in our passage, note the words with me there in your Bibles, he says, for now our salvation is nearer, or we might say closer, than when we first believed. Now when a Paul here speaks about our salvation being nearer, what is he speaking about? Well, clearly, he's speaking about that final aspect of our salvation, which is known as glorification. You see, dear ones here this day, if you and I study our Bibles closely, we will see that they teach that our salvation comes to us in three ways, namely that which is past, uh, that which is present, and that which is future. And so firstly, they speak about our salvation as that which is past. And this is, if you're taking notes, in such a passage as Romans 5 and verse 1. For there the Apostle Paul says, having been, aorist tense verb, having been, past tense, having been justified by faith, we have peace, we have arene, we have shalom with God. And so, dear ones here this morning, simply stated, the point is, the very moment you and I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ alone for life and salvation, we were legally justified and forgiven of all of our sins and credited with this perfect, flawless virtue once for all time. Glory be to his name. Ah, but secondly, our Bibles also speak about our salvation as that which is present in such a passage as 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18 where the Apostle Paul says there that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But then he goes on to say, but to us who are, quote, being saved, being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. And so what's the point? Well, the point is, for us who have been saved by the free grace of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, God continues to renew our hearts and our minds through the ongoing process of 
sanctification. Well, thirdly then, if you're taking notes, and if you're not taking notes as well, our Bibles speak to us about our salvation as that which is still future. What passage? Here's a passage, Romans 5 and verse 9. For there the Apostle Paul says that having been justified by Jesus' blood, we shall, we shall, future tense verb, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And so simply stated, this means that the work of salvation which God began in our lives in justification and the work of salvation which God continues all throughout our lives through the process of sanctification that work which he began will one day be completed in glorification. This, beloved congregation, is the fact of the matter. Consequently, Paul could say to us, for example, in Romans 8 and verse 30, that whom God predestined to eternal life, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And these whom he justified, these he will also glorify. Now, this is the, the golden chain of salvation, as William Perkins rightly called it. All whom God calls, he justifies. All whom he justifies, he sanctifies. And blessed be God. All those whom he sanctifies, they will in fact be glorified. Well, again, it is this final aspect of our salvation that the Apostle Paul is highlighting here in Romans chapter 13. Simply put, when our Lord Jesus Christ returns, this final, this last stage in our redemption will be completed. And at that time, according to Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, our Lord will transform our lowly body so that it might be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. Well, in view of such an event, dear ones here this day, I say, what a great day that's going to be, right? Uh, what a great day that's going to be. I mean, this is going to be the very best day in our lives when that which is corruptible will put on incorruption and that when that which is mortal will put on immortality. Are you longing for that day, dear Christian, here this day? Are you longing for it? When this body of death will be perfected. When we will be glorified forevermore. Oh, it should cause us all to say, even so, come Lord Jesus, come. Well here, as Paul puts forth this great end time reality, he says that we are to awake out of our spiritual slumber because of it. He says that we must be watchful. And why? Well, it's because our final redemption draws nigh, to use our Lord's words in Matthew chapter 24. Now, it's also important for you and I to note here in these words that when Paul speaks about our final salvation being nearer than when we look at the language first believed, that he's highlighting to us a key point which he has been putting forth throughout this entire epistle, which is to say that salvation is by faith alone. You see, Paul does not say here that our salvation is nearer than when we were first baptized, as some were today, no. Nor does he say that our salvation is nearer than when we first joined the church, no, or partook of the sacraments, no, or attempted to keep the Ten Commandments, no. Rather, he says that our salvation is nearer than when we first believe. He says it's nearer than when we first put our faith in Christ alone for salvation. And why? Simply stated. It's because, according to the Bible, faith is the singular means whereby salvation is granted 
to an individual. Faith, not works. Faith, not good deeds. Faith, not our strivings to keep the law, no. But faith alone, which is a complete trust in and a wholehearted reliance upon Jesus' finished work at Calvary as our only acceptance before the Almighty God. And so, having called us to wake up, in verse 11 of this chapter, in view of the soon, sure, and glorious return of Christ, Paul goes on secondly in verses 12 to 13 of this chapter to tell us to clean up, clean up. Note his words again with me in your Bibles. He writes first in 12a saying that the night is far spent and the day is at hand. Now when Paul speaks here about the night, he's speaking metaphorically about this present evil age of sin which has just about run its course. Oh, that's what he means. The term night is used this way, for example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, when Paul says to the believers there that, quote, we are not of the night, nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Why? Paul tells us, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, what do they do? He says they get drunk at night. Well, Again, here, as Paul thinks about the sure return of Jesus, he says that the night is far spent. He says, and blessed be God for this, that the day of evil is almost over, and that the day is at hand, which again speaks about the day of our Lord's return. Well, because this is so, he says next in 12b, note the words in your Bibles. He says, therefore, or better translated, Consequently, now this is the import of all that he has just said. Consequently, let us cast off as the people of God or lay aside the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. And so what then is Paul saying here? Well, what he's saying to us who are believers is that firstly, Negatively speaking, you and I are to rid ourselves, listen carefully, we are to rid ourselves of every single thing in our lives that we know is not pleasing to the Lord. That's his first moral implication. And then positively speaking, he says that we are to put on the armor, or we might say the covering of light, which symbolically seems to speak here about the protective gear of a godly Christian life. Now, in view of these he words here, dear ones, I, I must pause to ask all of you here this morning, are, are you truly understanding, are you truly getting what Paul is saying to us in this passage? I, I ask, are, are you grasping it? You see, here he's saying to us that since, in fact, our Lord is due to return, you and I who are the people of God need to be sure that we are not involved in anything, underscore it, anything ungodly. He's saying that if there's any sin that we are engaging in, we need to mortify it quickly by the power of the Holy Spirit, repenting of it. Consequently, I say, dear ones here this day, that the sure return of Christ is to be a true help to our holiness. We don't know when Jesus is going to return. And so this is a powerful impetus for us as the people of God to put away our sin. I ask you here this day, are you doing that very thing? Do you live in light to the fact that Christ can return at any point, run the heavens, and end this age and usher in the age to come? Do you live in view of this great eschatological reality or... 
Has a spiritual slumber come upon you so that you're not even thinking about this grand fact anymore? Brother, we need to live in view of Jesus' return. Whitfield once said that when Christ returns, I want to be found doing one of two things, either praying or preaching. How about you here this day? What do you want to be found doing when Jesus returns? I pray it's the most holy act that you could possibly think of. Why? Because as I said in the beginning of the message, you want to live pleasing to your Lord. And so again, this fact that our Lord could return at any time, in His appointed time, at that decisive moment in history, we don't know when it is, but as we live in view of it, dear ones, it'll help us to live holy as the people of God. It'll cause you and I to keep short accounts with God. A short account with one another. And so I ask you, beloved, is that how you live? Or again, is it for you, well, Jesus will return one day, and it's okay that I continue on with this fornication, with this idolatry, with this drunkenness. It's okay that I continue to treat my wife badly, my husband badly, my children badly, because you know, who knows when Jesus is going to return? I got all the time in the world. Friend, no, you do not. The return of Christ is to be on our minds regularly. When you read the New Testament, you see that the writers are living with this motif in mind. The Lord returns quickly. He shall return soon. It's like it's going to happen at any moment. Because they were living in view of this reality. And it was shaping their lives as the people of God. It's a tremendous motive, brethren, to our holiness. Thus, this is why, for example, the Apostle John could say in 1 John chapter 3, that everyone that has this hope of Jesus' return, what does he say? He doesn't keep on living in his lust, no. He doesn't keep on watching pornography, no. He says, everyone who has this understanding of Christ's sure return purifies himself, even as Jesus himself is pure. Again, Peter can say the same thing. 2 Peter chapter 3. In view of Jesus' sure return, Peter says that we are to live, quote, in holy conduct and in all godliness. Again, I ask you, beloved ones here this day, is this how you are living? Well, just in case, you and I needed some clarity as to what we are to clean up in our lives as Christians. Paul says next in verse 13 of this chapter, note the words with me there in your Bibles. He writes saying, let us walk or better understood, conduct ourselves properly, or we might say becomingly, as in the day. And then he says, note the language, not in revelry and drunkenness, or we might say in wild, sinful partying with excessive drinking so that we become intoxicated as unbelievers do all around us. No. He says next, look at the language, not in lewdness or in sexual immorality, and lust or unbridled sensuality. And then he says, thirdly, and not in strife or bickering and envy or jealousy. It's amazing how Paul speaks about those, what we would call big sins. But then he says, no, 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 I'm not going to let just the big sins stand before you. There's also this matter of strife or bickering, those what we might call smaller sins, envy and jealousy. Paul says, no, you and I are not to live in these things habitually. Now, in these words here, Paul puts forth three not statements. You saw it? Not, not, not. Three not grouping statements. And in reading them, we might wonder if these were really sins which the Christians at Rome were habitually, underscore it, habitually involved in. Sins which, by the way, were very prevalent in 
first century Rome. Were these sins which these believers were habitually as a pattern of life involved in? Was this the case? Well, personally, I do not think so. I don't think this was the case. Hence, this is why, for example, Paul, in Romans chapter 1, he identifies these believers in Rome as uh, the saints who are in Rome. They were the hagios. They were the the holy ones. That's how he described them. Uh, uh, Furthermore, Paul could say in Romans 6, with reference to these believers, but God be thanked that though you were, were, past tense, though you were the slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. And having been set free from sin, Paul says... To this church, you became the slaves of righteousness. Now, of course, having said this, the truth of the matter is, dear ones, that all of us who are Christians can still be tempted to any one of these horrific sins, and we could still fall into them. Right? We could still be tempted to any one of these sins and and fall into those sins. Thus, Paul's words here are very applicable to us. This is the sad truth of the matter. However, having said this on a positive note now, let me say, blessed be God that for us who are the true people of God, our great God has promised to preserve us in a life of gospel holiness all the way to glory. Yes, blessed be God that even though we may fall into grievous sins and continue in them for a while due to the temptations of Satan and the world and the strength of remaining sin in us, Oh, church, I say, nevertheless, we who are true Christians will renew our repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. In quoting from our own London Baptist Confession of Faith. Well, this, beloved friends here this morning, is good news to be sure, right? When you think about all the uh, trials and temptations, the toils and snares, blessed be God that He, having saved us, will keep us saved to the end. This is glorious news which should encourage us as we continue to daily strive after gospel holiness, knowing that our great God, having begun a good work in us will complete that work until the day of Christ, Philippians chapter 1. And so, having told us in our passage that we are to wake up and we are to clean up, come with me now thirdly to note in verse 14 of this chapter that Paul says finally that we are to suit up. We are to suit up. Note his words. In your Bibles, he writes saying 14, but, uh, the Greek word Allah, strong contrast, but put on the Lord, or we might say the sovereign master, Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Now, these words here, by the apostles stand in sharp contrast to the three groupings of sin that he just listed in the previous verse. Actually, listen, his words here highlight to us how it is that you and I can have victory in our lives over the sins which he just previously spoke of And this is by us obeying the command in verse 14 of this chapter. Now, of course, when Paul speaks here about us putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, he's not referring to us receiving 
the flawless, imputed righteousness of Christ that you and I received in justification the moment we trusted in Jesus to be our Savior. This is not the case. And I say this because, according to the Bible, that putting on of Christ in this sense is a one-time act which is never repeated, even as Paul teaches in Romans chapter 3, 4, and 10. And so if Paul here is not speaking about this matter, what is he speaking of? Well, simply stated, he's speaking about what is to happen to us daily in our lives through the process of sanctification. You see, when Paul speaks here about you and I as the people of God putting on the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can live holy in view of Jesus' second coming, he's telling us metaphorically that as believers, you and I are to be sure that we are wearing Jesus wherever we go. How's that? That's nice and simple. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean for us who are Christians? It means that we have to be sure that we are wearing Jesus wherever we go so that we are regularly modeling his Godward life of a holy heart and a holy mind and a submissive will to God the Father. A dear one simply put, to put on Christ means that you and I need to be Christ men and women from head to toe, as Douglas Moo, the excellent Bible commentator rightly says. Or simply stated, it means that we are to imitate our Lord Jesus Christ, walking even as he walked. For as the Apostle John says to us in 1 John chapter 2, he who says he abides in Jesus ought himself to walk even as he walked. Well, church, as we do this, and also, as we make no provision for the flesh, or we might say no planning or forethought with reference to it, as Paul says next in our verse, what he says in the last part of the verse will no doubt be true for us when he writes saying in 14c that we will not fulfill its lust. Now, as I'm sure many of you in this place will know, it was verses 13 and 14 of this chapter. Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. It was these particular verses which were powerfully used of God to bring conviction of sin and then salvation to a man who's known as St. Augustine. Who's heard of St. Augustine? You have, right? It was this very passage that God used to bring conviction and then conversion to St. Augustine. Now, if you know anything about St. Augustine, you know that before he was saved, he was anything but a saint. Anything but a saint. In fact, the sins which are listed in the previous verses absolutely characterized his life. For he was an extremely sexually immoral man. He was a drunkard, etc. Ah, but dear brothers and sisters here this day, one day God got hold of this man. God got hold of him. Thank God he had a, a praying mother. I believe his mother's name was Monica. And here she's watching her son. He's a rising star in the Roman Empire. He's a great rhetorician. And he's winning all his debates. And he's just in the world headlong, living in sin, living in pride, living in lust, living in drunkenness. And his mom sometimes would show up at the debates where her unsafe son was debating. And she'd be praying for him that God would save him. Moms, let me encourage you in this place, if you have unsaved children, keep praying for them. Keep praying for them. 
God has used the prayers of moms and grandmothers and others to save multitudes of people. And so, so here's Augustine. He's unsaved. He's in the world. And one day, he's having great wrestlings of soul. He's struggling. He, he, he had heard the gospel from his Christian mother, and yet he's wrestling with worldly ideas. He's in the throes of things. And he's with a friend, and he's in the backyard of this friend's house, and lo and behold, right next to him was a scroll. It was a parchment. And the parchment just happened to be the book of Romans. And he just happened to crack open that parchment, and lo and behold, his eyes fell upon Romans 13 and verse 14. And God powerfully saved his soul. This very verse, God used to transform his life. Listen to Augustine himself. He says, quote, No further would I read, nor had I any need to do so. For instantaneously, at the end of our sentence, a clear light flooded my heart, and all of the darkness of doubt vanished away forevermore. Brethren, here is the power of the Word of God. The power of the Word of God. Spurgeon said the Word of God is like a lion. Just let it out of its cage, and it'll do its thing. You'll see the power of it. And so here it was. Our passage in view, which would save the never-dying soul of Augustine and make him one of the greatest theologians that the church has ever known. Well, here then is where we end the exposition of our passage in view for this morning concerning the subject of the Christian's gospel obligation in view of the glorious, sure return of Christ. This church is what Paul presses upon us from our passage in view. And so, having considered it, what applications can we take for ourselves? Firstly, who are the people of God in this place? I've proclaimed our passage. I've explained our passage. Now it's time to apply it. So what? So what? So what? In view of our passage, so what? What does it call us to do as God's children? Well, there are three things. And I'm going to follow my little crafty headings that I began with when I started the sermon. Three things for us who are Christians. And the first is look up. The second is get up. And the third is pray up. Look up, get up, and pray up. And so first, brethren, by way of application, you and I are to look up. Look up. To what end? Look up and be encouraged. Because our final redemption draws nigh. We don't know when our Lord is going to return. And no doubt, there are things that need to happen before He does return. But friends, He is returning. He is returning. He says to us, behold, I come quickly. He is returning. And so, brethren, I say, be encouraged. These are difficult days, regardless of where you live on the face of this planet. These are hard days. A Paul could say in Acts chapter 14, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. So much for the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel in that statement. In the world you will have tribulation. Ah, but then he says, be of good cheer, for I myself have overcome the world. Brethren, I say look up. Look up. Look up. But what does our Lord say? John 14. I'll just read it to you. Verses 1 to 3. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me also. Why would he say that? Because he is God. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not have told you. Of course, he wouldn't have wasted our time. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. That's encouraging. 
But what's most encouraging is what he says in verse 3. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. To myself. So that where I am, you will be also. Oh, brethren, look up. Your Savior is returning. Look up. He's prepared a place for you. One day He's going to wipe away all your tears, all your sorrow, all your pain, all of it. It's going to be taken away in an instant. I say, church, we must look up. Don't look down. Don't look at your problems. Look away from yourself. Look away from your troubles. In the ultimate sense, and remember that the Lord is coming. And when He comes again, He'll close out this age and He'll usher in the age to come. And in that age, righteousness shall dwell forevermore. Are you longing for that day, brethren? Are you looking forward to that great end time? Promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. It should encourage us. It should bring great encouragement and hope to our souls. But secondly, in view of our text for this morning, you and I must also get up. We must get up. But you say get up and do what? Get up and do the work of evangelism. Right? We're not to be pew warmers in the church. We're to be active in the church, doing all that we can to get the gospel out. We're to do the work of preaching Christ. Why? Because Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. And so you see how our Lord Jesus Christ connects the preaching of the gospel with his sure and glorious return. Preach the gospel, he says, to all the nations. For then the end will come. Brethren, you and I have a task to do. And as I said to our brother Charles, On the way over, may it be that in our churches, the Great Commission never becomes the Great Omission. No, we've been called to share Christ as far and wide as we can. Mothers at home, you you share it with your children. You seek to gospelize the children. You, you, You teach them the gospel. Fathers, I trust when you get home from work that you 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 eat with your family and you have family worship. When I say family worship, I don't mean that you worship your family. No, we only worship Jesus. But but fathers, you you, you sit down with your family. Again, whether you do it in the morning, at night, uh, that's not the issue. But you sit down, you say, now we're going to open the Word of God. And you have a a, a short time where where you, you read the Word, you pray the Word, you sing the Word, and you seek to make some applications just briefly to your children. But we do this work in the home. Our homes, as it were, our little churches, as the Puritans would say. And so we seek to evangelize our children. We want to have our hands clean, parents, on the final day of judgment. God must save our children. We can't do that. Thou must save and thou alone. But friends, parents, we must do all that we can do to bring our children to Christ. I tell my children, I told them growing up, you see my hands? They're as clean as can be. I say, used to say to them, if you go to hell, it's on your own account. I've done everything that I can, humanly speaking, to bring you close to Christ. Do that, parents. And if your kids don't get saved at 18 years old or whenever they leave the home, don't think, oh, now they'll never be saved. No. Sometimes they go out in the world and they come to see that The world is just like mom and dad said it was. Just like Jesus said it was. There's a broad road that leads to destruction. Mom and dad said, one of my favorite verses of all times, quoting, I believe, from the King James Version now, that the way of the transgressor is hard. 
It is hard. It's hard. And you'll come to see that, my dear young people here this day. And that's why we urge you to close with Christ at a young age. That's why Solomon says, know your Creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come. Parents, we must evangelize our children. And then as churches, we must do all that we can to get the gospel out. Various forms, again, whether it's knocking on doors or having Bible studies or or street preaching or, or clinics. You all do different things. But brethren, we need to get up in view of Jesus' return and call sinners to repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly then, and finally for us who are the people of God, we are to pray up. Pray up. You say, what do you mean? What I mean is we need to daily pray up to God for strength that we might live as He would have us to live. I am the vine, you are the branches apart from me. Jesus said, John 15, you can do nothing. Does that mean I can't go to work without Jesus enabling me? I can't make my bed without Jesus enabling me? Well, in one sense, that's true because he's causing your heart to beat. But, but really, that's not the point of the passage. The passage is you can do nothing, spiritually speaking, apart from Jesus. We need him. We need to be connected to him. We are connected to him by virtue of being in union with him. But we daily need communion with Christ. Thus we must pray up to Him. Pray up to God through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh God, help me to live as a godly man, a godly woman, a godly boy, a a godly girl in this present evil age. Brethren, we need help. And so may it be that every day you're seeking the face of God. Mom's at home, dad's at home, dad's at work, working with the ungodly all the day long. Uh, uh, children as you go off to college. How are you going to live for Christ? How are you going to be an effective witness for Him? You must seek the face of your God all the day long. And so I close then. With a word to anyone here this day who's not truly saved. When I say truly saved, I mean born again. When I say Christian, that's what I mean. A Christian is a, someone who is born again. They've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness and put into the kingdom of God's Son. They've been made a new creation in Christ Jesus the Lord. To the end that all things are passing away and behold, all things are becoming new. Our brother was right when he said from this pulpit that the greatest miracle that God does now, it's called salvation. That's the miracle of God. He takes those who were dead in trespasses and sins and makes them new people in Jesus Christ the Lord. What an amazing thing that is. An amazing thing. And so you're here this day and you're not saved. You're not born again. And so, in view of our passage this morning, what must you do? What must you do? Well, it's not look up. It's not get up. And it's not pray up, but here it is. You must fess up. You must fess up. Now that's how we speak in New York. You need to fess up. I don't know if that translates here as well, but it simply means, my dear non-Christian friend, that you need to own up to the fact that you are guilty before God. You were born in sin and you have been living in sin till this present moment. My dear non-Christian friend, listen. You need to own up to the fact that if Jesus had already returned this day to judge the world in righteousness, you would be in hell right now. 
If he returned 10 minutes ago, you would be in hell right now for 10 minutes. And for time without end after that. Now that is a horrible thought. But you need to own up to this fact. That right now you'd be under the wrath of God for all eternity. The horrors of horrors of hell is that there's no end to it. There are no exits in hell. Hell is the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is the place where the worm dieth not. Hell is the place where John tells us in the book of the Revelation that the smoke of their torment ascendeth forever and ever. My dear non-Christian friend here this day, if Jesus returned ten minutes ago, you would be experiencing that in great measure. What a horrible thought that is. That's a terrible thought, but that's a reality. That's the true thought of the Bible. And so therefore, my dear unsaved person here this day, I call you to repent of your sins. Young people here this day, I call you to turn from your sins. Older people, whoever you are, I turn from your sins and say, oh God, I'm done with this life. I'm done with this wicked thing or things. Oh God, I need to be saved I need to be forgiven. I need to be made a real Christian. And I know, oh great God, that you can do this, for salvation is your easy work. My friend, God sent his Son into the world, sinners to save. This God who must punish you for all eternity is the God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He's the God who would this day deliver you from your sins, from yourself, from Satan, and from his own wrath. But friend, you must come to Christ to be saved. You must fess up to him, oh God, I am undone. I am as an unclean thing in your sight. Oh God, my heart is full of pride like our brother told us. It's full of lust. It's full of envy. It's full of anger. Oh God, I haven't honored your name. I haven't kept your day holy. I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I've broken all of your commandments, oh God. And your word tells us, uh, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Oh God, I am under your curse. That's the terrible news of the Bible. But the Bible goes on to tell us that even though cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them, it goes on to tell us that Christ became a curse for us. Christ willingly went to the cross to take the sins of sinners upon himself and to be cursed by God for their sins. At the cross, that's what Jesus and love did for people like us. He was cursed so that all who trust in his work on our behalf might be blessed, might be forgiven, might be reconciled to God through his sacrifice on our behalf. Oh, my beloved Friend here this day, you who don't know Jesus yet, I pray that this will be the day that you will throw down the weapons of your warfare against God and fly to Jesus by faith and be saved. Say, oh Jesus, wash me from my sins. Cleanse me from all my iniquity. Make me to be a true child of God. All who come to Jesus, He receives. And so come to Him by faith and by faith alone. 
my dear friend, and be saved. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for fresh reminders about how we are to live in view of Jesus' return. Lord, I pray for all your people, for anyone here this day, myself included, oh God, for any areas of of sloppiness, that we would repent of them even as your people, that we would make no provision for the flesh, but daily put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh God, I pray that for any area where we need shoring up, and we all need areas of shoring up, that you would help us, oh God, to repent of those things quickly, to cut off right hands and to pluck out right eyes by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we might live as you would have us to live. And for those among us here this day who don't know you, might this be the day of salvation. Might some come to see Jesus as the living and lovely Savior of their never-dying souls. I ask and pray these things in his wonderful name. Amen.